This, this is the second, second Story Podcast. Welcome back to the Second Story Podcast. I'm Max Spitz. Happy New Year, everyone. We're over a week into 2020, and the holiday season has come to a close for now. This means something quite significant to those of us with close ties to education. The end of winter break. Students and teachers alike have begun flocking back to school once again. This week's story from teller Aaron Talley celebrates the highs and lows of the first day, week, and year at school, but from the teacher's side of the classroom. Recorded live at Pub 626 in Chicago in September 2019, Second Story is proud to present the Teacher Toolkit. One week before the first day of my first year of teaching, I'm at an outdoor retreat with my coworkers for community building. And it's a little muggy, but not too bad. And I'm walking alongside my new grade level partner, Miss Lane. I can't wait to meet them, I said to her, referring to my soon-to-be students, third graders. <laughs> she looked at another teacher and said, Smith, you hear that? He says he can't wait to meet them. <laughs> they both started laughing. And I remained silent the whole time. Because <laughs> having recently graduated my master's program so young, I was used to being patronized. And what Ms. Lane and Mr. Smith didn't know was that I was a black superhero, 22 years old, in a shirt and tie. Yeah. Thank you for the snaps, yes. <laughs> I knew what her and Mr. Smith's laughter was. It was something called deficit ideology. Avoid deficit ideology was my mostly white and liberal teaching programs mantra. It's basically when you see black and brown kids from a place of lack rather than focusing on their assets. It's the jaded, you know, like teachers uh, lounge conversations where, you know, kids are ghetto, lazy, the parents are careless, you know, anything but the teacher's fault. And often, deficit ideology is cloaked racism and classism. So Mr. Smith's and Ms. Lane's laughter was textbook. So on the first day of school, I greeted 27 third graders. I fumbled through my opening lessons. And at the end of the day, when I had an hour left on the clock and had ran out of things to teach them, I had them gather and hold hands on the rug. We're gonna be a family, I had said to their smiling faces. And I was sweating a little bit from having too much time left on the clock. I felt redeemed in that moment. Fuck Miss Lane, fuck Mr. Smith. I just knew that I was saving all of them from the school to prison pipeline. <laughs> These kids saw me coming. Here is a non-exhaustive list of everything that happened in my classroom that my teacher's program did not tell me about. <laughs> students bringing knives to school. Students bringing lighters to school. Students setting things on fire in the bathrooms. Students jumping out of their seats and dancing behind my back. Students throwing paper balls. Students stealing from me repeatedly. 
Students somehow removing an industrial-sized bolt from a desk, causing it to collapse. Me being called a bitch twice, and the coupe de gras, a broken glass window in a door. That broken glass door demolished what used to be my no drinking alone rule. <laughs> Just in time for Christmas break, I sat on the floor, lying against my couch, tears streaming down my face, listening to gospel music with a pitiful glass of whiskey dangling in my fingertips. One of my third graders, diagnosed with a peculiar condition known as oppositional defiant disorder, had left my classroom after being kicked out for the umpteenth time and had slammed the door so hard that the glass window had shattered. And you know what happened next, so all the teachers in the hallway <laughs> slowly etched themselves out of the classroom including another coworker, Ms. Washington, who looked me dead in my face and said, do you need a minute? No, I'm fine. <laughs> I couldn't let anybody know that I wasn't the savior black educator I thought I was, even though suddenly the only deficits I could focus on were my own. And strangely, for all the family and freedom that I wanted to bring into my classroom, I was being treated like a doormat. Meanwhile, teachers like Ms. Lane, who regularly cussed and snapped on her kids, had functional and routine classrooms. <laughs> Every time I walked in there, kids were clapping and cheering. I swear it was like sparkles and glitter all the damn time. So one day I asked her, well, why do you think the kids respond to us being so harsh? I don't know, Tally, she said. I just do what works. If something different worked, I'd do it. And her words reverberated in my mind as I stared into that glass of whiskey. Deficit ideology be damned. I needed to get my classroom under control because theory wasn't worth shit in practice. After winter break, I became the exact type of teacher I thought I never would be. I yelled, made threatening hand gestures, <laughs> called parents like a bill collector, and reminded my students that third grade test scores were used to estimate which prisons to build. And so I would end up saying stuff like, do you want to be a third grader that got a prison built, or do you want to pass this test? I developed a talent, I know. I developed a talent <laughs> for tying all of their bad behavior back to the reason black people were being killed in the streets. Guilt, shame, and fear became the tools of my teacher's toolkit. And it worked. <laughs> Students worked quietly, diligently. They listened to my instructions without delay. And ironically, I felt like I was able to be more loving after becoming a tyrant. I'm proud of you, Tally, my uptight principal used to tell me, because I had done it. I had mastered classroom management. And sometimes, you know, I still felt a little conflicted about the type of teacher I was. 
But I told myself that my otherwise, you know, positive energy and passion for teaching outweighed my, you know, somewhat unsavory actions. I mean, you know, it's not like I'm hitting kids or calling them names. And so by my third year, I was good enough to garner a promotion of sorts. No longer on the second floor with the intermediate grades, I was now on the top floor with the middle schoolers. The floor infamous for its dysfunction in fights. Even the walls got darker as you climbed up the stairs. Now I was teaching sixth, seventh, and eighth, and I figured the sixth graders, somebody said, I figured the sixth graders would be a breeze since I had taught them as fifth graders and had loved them. But as the year progressed, they turned out to be the most difficult. The summer seemed to have turned them into monsters. Every no was followed by a negotiation, and today would eventually wear me down to a okay, fine. And the standout star, Lanaya. Lanaya was a gruff little girl with unkempt hair, big cheeks, an even bigger voice, and smile. Now, she wasn't the only difficult kid in class, but she was the main one to push the limits. Now, since I had had her since she was a fifth grader, I was able to kind of put her behavior in the necessary context. Everybody in the school knew that her family was very dysfunctional. And so, where other teachers tried punishment, I often tried conversations. Lanai and I spent several lunches and recesses together, and my classroom was kind of like a, ref a refuge for her. But even with me, she sometimes became all stomps and smack lips, and so I too would end up putting her in detention. To me, though, she was still my little fifth grade baby, so even when she was in trouble with me, she was usually just a conversation away from at least a few weeks' worth of peace. Her favorite joke was to ask me, Mr. Tally, everybody keeps saying I'm loud. Am I loud? to which me and the whole class would be like, yes! One Monday, I came to work and I had learned that Lanaya's mother had been jailed. And this idea was unimaginable to me, so to help her cope, I bought her a pink journal. I got something for you, I said. And her eyes lit up and she threw an open palm towards me. I pulled out the journal and she snatched it. I had a feeling you liked the color pink, which I knew because every damn thing she owned was pink. <laughs> I do. Thank you. And she walked away without saying another word. Now, I had hoped that this journal would cement peace for the rest of the year. Because another thing teachers programs like to tell you is that if you show students you care, it'll solve all your problems. Buying the journal felt like the icing on the cake that would make our rapport strong as iron. But I was wrong. So one day I had made the kids be quiet after free time because they had been too noisy. And you know, I stood over them, arms crossed, trying to add some bass to my voice. No questions, I said. Of course, Lanaya's hand shoots up. Can I go to the bathroom? No. Because a second ago she had been fine when she was talking to her friends. I knew what would happen next. Lanaya jumps up out of her chair, storms out. My mama said I can go to the bathroom if I want. The rest of the class and I wait, because we know the routine. Get your stuff, go to detention, I say when she comes back. That's okay, because I'm going to be at home chilling and my mama won't care. Now, it was just something 
about the way she tossed her things into that book bag. The flagrant disregard of everything I had done for her started to rattle in my head. After having taught her for two years, after all the conversations, all the compliments, all the yeses, and even the journal, she was still treating me like a damn substitute. And maybe, I got to thinking, this class was so bad because of Lanaya. They had seen her get a slap on the wrist for all of her bad behavior. So I figured if I didn't do anything now, I would lose control of this class for the rest of the year. Now, I should tell you that there was this one teacher who had the middle schoolers on lock. Her name was Mrs. Kimball. She had a finesse that was motherly but a little bit problematic, but her weapon of choice was ridicule. If kids tried her, her mouth would slice them into silence. And I mean, you could literally see them shrink at her onslaught. Now, I had promised myself that I had never, that I would never call kids names. But Ms. Kimball's perfect management had me rethinking that rule. Maybe this was the final piece that I needed to, you know, fit in the puzzle. <sighs> Maybe middle schoolers needed this sort of verbal lashing. And Lanaya's little episode felt like the perfect opportunity to try it. So my eyes began scanning every part of her before I settle on that unintentional little Afro puff atop her head. Well, I say while she's putting her stuff in her bag, make sure you get your hair done while you gone. And the class lit up like it was an episode of Maury. Lanaya stood there and just looked at me, shocked into silence. And this is it, I'm thinking. I did it. Then after a pregnant pause, Lanaya blurts out, stop being gay. And then the class got even louder. So I waved my hand, you know, trying to toss the comment aside. I think of Ms. Kimball and I say, you can't even spell gay. But the comment sort of fell to the ground and missed the noise. And at that moment, a student jumps out of his chair and spits, how you gonna talk about Mr. Tally? Look at your clothes, look at your shoes. My mind's blank at this point, and I trace my eyes over the classroom, kids laughing, Lanaya fuming, and I realize I had done something, but not what I wanted. Security arrived to escort Lanaya out of the classroom, all right, all right, I say, half expecting the class to mutiny in that moment. But somehow the class still got quiet, and the loudest thing was just my racing heart and my guilty conscience. And as I walked towards the board, another student, Kayla, whose father had just died, asked me, are you okay, Mr. Talley? Girl, yes, I'm grown, I'm good. But I wasn't good. I wasn't good when the glass on the door shattered, and I wasn't good now. I sat in my car that night outside of my house for about 30 minutes. The black superhero was gone. I only had two major rules and had broken one of them. And to be honest, I had pretty much broken all of my values. I had made fun of a 12-year-old girl with an incarcerated mother. I mean, who thankfully gave me no major problems after that, but at that point, the win didn't feel much like a victory. 
So soon afterwards, I knew it was time to start over. The next year, in a new school, I received a text from my former coworker, Ms. Washington, the one who was you know, looking at me out the door. And it was a text to her from Lanaya saying that Lanaya's mother had passed away. Please tell Mr. Talley, it said, I want him to know. A flood of all the memories of Lanaya burst back into my head and the tears came instantly. And I don't know if I was crying because I was grateful she still wanted to reach out or if I still felt guilty for all the things I had said. Maybe those conversations did mean something despite our conflict. The loop of that moment often whirls in my mind again and again. And I think it's because the superhero in me wants to make sense of it all, to find the ideology that actually does work in practice. Well, shit, maybe my students didn't need a superhero, and for damn sure not one without integrity. Maybe they just needed me. Now in my sixth year of teaching, I still try to be Superman sometimes, but I'm learning to walk into the classroom without a cape. I still sometimes think about what Ms. Lane says. I just do what works. And you know what? Just because something works doesn't mean it's right. I didn't become a teacher to be fighting all the time, and all battles ain't even worth winning. This story was produced by Kit Ryan, curated by Julie Ganey, directed by Dorothy Milne, with music and sound design by Mike Benedict. Second Story is supported by the MacArthur Fund for Art and Culture at the Richard H. Driehaus Foundation, Skadden Arp Slate Meager and Flom, the Gaylord and Dorothy Donnelly Foundation, the Chicago Department of Cultural Affairs and Special Events, CoBank, and many generous individuals like you. I'm Max Spitz, and this... This, this is the Second, Second Story Podcast.